survey of Colossians, part two. Thank you for joining us once again as we continue to move through Colossians. And I didn't really even intend to do this, but Colossians uh, is overwhelmingly focused on gratitude and thanksgiving. So uh, how fitting is it that we will be spending most of November moving through a letter uh, that focuses on thanksgiving and gratitude, certainly a fruitful seasonal byproduct of this study following um, as it has. We will be in Colossians chapter 1 going through uh, chapter 20, verse 23 during this episode, and we're just going to jump right in and get into the content. Uh, If you missed our first episode from the survey of Colossians, we spent time last week examining uh, the context and authorship, location, and all the different discussions about the origins of the letter, uh, what, what Paul was actually writing about, what he's confronting, who may have been uh, to cause and causing that and involved with that. And so I encourage you, if you missed that, to actually pause this episode, go back and maybe listen to parts of it uh, from last week, and uh, kind of brief yourself on the broad scope of Colossians and what was going on in the city of Colossae at the time, and kind of familiarize yourself uh, with what we'll be talking about um, in this episode as we get into uh, Colossians 1, and we will just start here in chapter 1, verse 1, and I will be reading from the New American Standard, as I normally do, and I'll do be doing some cross-referencing to the NIV uh, once again. Um, I use the NIV frequently to, to teach to the youth and to our students, and the New American Standard is my study Bible of preference. And so most of the time when I'm doing these episodes and these teachings, it's a conglomeration of uh, those two translations. And so uh, we'll be starting with the New American Standard in this episode and kind of moving through and and cross-referencing with the NIV some. So Colossians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God, our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you have previously heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason I also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in heaven's and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
He is also head of the body, the church, and he is, in the, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his, of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, in my flesh I do, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The first two sections of Paul's letter to the Colossians consist of his normal salutation, and we see that in verses 1 and 2, and the prayer of thanksgiving that he offers to God on behalf of believers in the church, which is verses 3 through 23. And these sections ultimately kind of help set the agenda for the rest of the letter. Uh, going to the salutation and the greeting, which is verses 1 and 2, Paul begins his greeting by identifying himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And he does not write as a private, interested party, but as Christ's apostle uh, who speaks with authority, who speaks with confidence. And so by identifying himself in this way, Paul is not trying to establish his badge or rank or put readers under his thumb or you know, speak down to them or anything like that. To Paul, his authority is not increased by the use of the title apostle, uh, just as it's not reduced when he fails to mention that he is an apostle or when he substitutes servant or prisoner or these other uh, ways to identify himself. Being an apostle is simply uh, what he is, and, and Paul was very aware of that. And so, you know, we shouldn't assume, as, as some people do, that when Paul refers to himself as an apostle, that he's defending his calling against bitter opposition. Uh, not everyone that Paul wrote to was suspicious of his eligibility or his adequacy as an apostle. And so he was not always stating his case. He was not always using this word to build up you know, his um, authoritative stance as a, a minister and as an apostle. And so he praises the Colossians as a loving, supportive community uh, for not, not bickering, for not backbiting, for not being a, a spiteful group um, and having all of these things go on that so many churches deal with. And so though many in the Colossian church have not met Paul personally, the letters kind of give the impression that they esteem uh, both him and Epaphras, uh, their evangelist, um, in, in a high regard. So Paul writes to them because they already accept his authority. Uh, that authority comes from the gospel that he's been called to preach, the same gospel that we've been called to preach, and it's a gospel that they have learned from Epaphras. So when Paul says that his calling as an apostle came by the will of God, it reflects his basic conviction that Christ called and empowered him to carry on this divine task that was entrusted to only a few. In the Old Testament, God appeared to prophets and sent them down to and sent them forth to proclaim the word. In Paul's case, a little bit different than that, Christ appeared to him and sent him out to proclaim a particular gospel. Uh, he did not decide to go into this line of work, to this ministry. He understood himself to have been set apart by God essentially from his mother's womb uh, to carry the gospel to the nations. And so his authority 
was unique since it derived directly from Christ, but Paul didn't see himself as set apart for high office, uh, which he could you know, rule the roost from or look down on people from or issue divine you know, directives or things like that. God assigned Paul a task to carry the gospel to all nations, to the Gentiles, not a status. And so Paul doesn't use this word apostle as a way to belittle others or to make them feel inferior. Um, if, if anything else, he's saying, look, this is, of, this is of God, not of myself. This is not a title. It's a task. It's a responsibility. And so the, 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 the world was Paul's mission field. Everything that he does as Christ's apostle involved Christ's church. So therefore, his charge to preach the gospel and build up the body of Christ by helping believers with their struggles and obedience leads him to intervene in the controversy that's going on uh, in Colossae with the Colossian believers. And so then Paul includes Timothy. And he says, our brother, as a, as a co-sender of the letter. We talked about this a little bit in episode one. We have no record of Timothy's direct connection to the Colossian church. Possibly his name appears in the citation because he composed the letter from Paul's dictation or under his direction. Uh, but the mentioning of Timothy's name also makes it clear that what follows is not Paul's particular opinion. Uh, Paul is not an end-all, be-all. He doesn't stand alone on these issues. He includes other people's, uh, to other people's opinions and other people's insight as he works with a team of ministers and this letter reflects the consensus of those who are with him. And we see that really come to fruition in chapter 4, verses 10 uh, through 14, which we'll get to in a few weeks. And so Paul then greets the church as holy and faithful brothers in Christ. Uh, holiness, as we know, has to do with being set apart from the world unto God. And it does not imply that these believers belong to some exalted you know, realm of saints or super spiritual beings or anything like that. So as God has made Paul his, his, his own as Christ's apostle, so also God has made the Colossians his covenant people in Colossae. And so the word holy uh, also can be, can be used as saints uh, was applied to Israel in the Old Testament. And so Paul intentionally includes Gentile Christians under this category. And what that means is that, is that they also belong to the eschatological people for whom all the promises of God apply. They are now factored in and included in that. So Paul customarily identifies the recipients of his letters as saints, uh, but he does not usually address them as faithful. And so this expression from Paul more than likely here, uh, refers to their steadfastness under pressure. Uh, the Colossians are genuinely faithful, uh, which is the reason for Paul's thanksgiving. Their faith isn't teetering on the brink of extinction. It's not trapped or submerged in some sort of false teaching or error, or, nor is it at the, the mercy of someone who's you know, driving false teaching down their throat constantly. They're holding fast to the head, uh, which is who is Jesus. And so and Paul only warns them about, about others who do not, others who do not hold to Jesus as the head. Their faith is not perfected, however, and so what Paul wants to do in writing them is to actually fortify it and to help further it and revitalize their growth. And so in this greeting right here, he establishes their common commitment so that he can move on to instruct and warn them about how they can be stronger and continue to be faithful despite the things going on around them. So it's here that we see Paul's goal. His goal is to ensure that they can remain securely established in their faith. We see that um, at the conclusion of chapter 1 and verse 23, and that they can remain growing in their knowledge. We see that in chapter 1, verse 10. And so 
when we, we move down and we look at some of the things that are used by Paul in terms of his phrasing in chapter 1, uh, we see this in Christ. And in Christ and, and related phrases appear frequently in Paul's writings. And the concept is central to his understanding of, of our salvation and how that plays out. There are a couple of things I want to note about uh, Paul's usage of in Christ before we kind of delve in deeper to chapter 1. Uh, first, to be in Christ means to be incorporated in him so that he encompasses the entire life of the believer. The recipients of this letter might have been Colossians, but the only identity that matters to God is that they are Christians. And so that means that, the, that, the, that Christ determines everything in their lives. And the same thing applies to us today, and, and we see that especially come to pass when it comes to election years with Republican, you know, Democrat, Libertarian, all these different labels we give ourselves. Ultimately, as Pastor Brad mentioned from the pulpit on Sunday, it does not matter what we identify with. The, the, the basic point of identity is not that we are conservative or Democrat or liberal or left-leaning or right-leaning or red or blue or however you want to refer to a different party. It's that we are Christians, is that we are believers. And so Paul will later make clear in the letter that his death becomes their death that his burial becomes their burial, and that his resurrection becomes their resurrection, and that his victory becomes their victory. And he does that in chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. The second thing about being in Christ means, it it, it means to be that that the Colossians are exclusively joined to him and to no other. Uh, You know, one cannot be in in another God and also be in Christ. So it's, it's an exclusive statement to be in Christ you know you can't be in one thing and in something else in terms of your faith that's not how that works and so uh, it's to be incorporated in him so that he encompasses the entire life of the believer but it's also to be exclusively joined to him but it also means that that he determines the beha- our behavior and the behavior of believers and so one cannot be in the world or into dark magic or into drugs for example and be in Christ um, and that's not super common um, or not super popular uh, to, to say, but elsewhere Paul uses this basic idea to denounce immorality. And so he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I, take, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. And that's in 1 Corinthians 6.15. And so for Paul, you know, not only was it meaning to be incorporated to Christ or to be exclusively in Christ, it, it means that you, were de- you had Christ determining your behavior and what you consistently did you know, with your life. Fourth thing that Paul uses this phrase to, to recognize is that it means that believers are inseparably joined to him. Uh, Paul expresses this elsewhere in the New Testament in Romans 8, 38, and 39, which were probably all very familiar with when he says, neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we see that we are we are married to him. We are we are glued to him. We are inseparably joined to him. But he he also uses this phrase to mean that believers are also joined to a new family where the dividing lines that separate and categorize persons have been erased. He also kind of alludes to that in Romans 12, verse 5. So our mutual faith in Christ has created a spiritual kinship that supersedes blood ties and supersedes 
earthly categories and political affiliations and all these other things. And so being in Christ gives Christians our, our true identity beyond our race, our nationality, our traditions. And so Paul, therefore, based on that, calls the Colossians brothers. Now, Jews address fellow Jews as brothers, and that's, that's referenced all throughout the New Testament, primarily in Acts. Uh, but for a devout Jew to call Gentiles brothers, uh, many of whom he has never met, reveals the radical consequences of a gospel that swept away all racial prejudices, isolating people from one another. And so we see in this customary greeting from Paul uh, where he transforms it into a promise of grace. So the letter itself to this group of believers that he calls brothers, signifying that they were, they were one, they were together as believers in Christ. So this letter to this group of believers is intended to be a means of grace. And the word grace reappears in the concluding wish of Paul in Colossians 4.18. So peace was the traditional greeting in Hebrew. You see it more often than any other thing um, in Hebrew. But the, the peace that Paul has in view is peace that, that only God's salvation brings. It brings harmony and it brings wholeness. And these are things that human force uh, or a, a balance of fear and trying to just live and not get zapped by some cosmic killjoy cannot establish. And so Paul shows a strong concern that the effects of this peace from God, that they would be obvious in the life of Christian communities. And so peace, therefore, becomes a key component in his moral teaching, and it appears in his appeal to the Colossians later in chapter 3, verse 15. And so Paul confesses that both grace and peace come from God our Father. The thanksgiving that follows uh, this section and this, this welcome and this opening is based on all that God has done and will continue to do. And so the nearness and love of God as, as a father was something particularly esteemed by Christians, and it still is today. And so Paul usually identifies God as the father of Jesus Christ, as he does right here in verse 3 of chapter 1. For Christians, God is our father because he is the father of Jesus Christ to whom we belong. And so the father is not this invisible God, but instead he's one who makes himself known through his son. So both father and son can be known, can be known even by those this kind of disdained as, as babes by the so-called wise and unlearned, as we would see in Matthew 11, chapter 25. And so that gets us through, through the greeting and through the, the opening statements here into verses 3 through 8, where Paul really starts to get into thanksgiving for the Colossians' reception of the gospel. And so here in verses 3 through 8, Paul informs the Colossians that he prays for the church consistently, uh, regularly, and that he gives thanks for them and all of his prayers. And so much like the, the sermon I preached in, back in May, on May 31st, about the Ephesians introduction, Paul is doing the same thing here. And so thanking God for their faith and love implies that he gives God the credit for it, uh, not them. The theme of thanksgiving is an important facet of this letter, and it, it, it reappears um, again in, in chapter uh, 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, 16, 17, and 4, uh, verse 2. And so here Paul gives thanks for three developments in their spiritual life. He, he lists three specific things that he's thankful for. Number one, he's thankful for their faithful acceptance of the gospel, which has spilled over into their love for others. Their active love 
is a genuine sign of genuine faith based upon solid hope. And so the Colossians have faith and love because of the hope that is stored up in heaven. In this letter, hope to Paul becomes the greatest of these um, instead of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, because hope is the very thing that Jewish critics are kind of writing off. You know, what hope do Gentiles have? We could see Ephesians 2, 12 to look into that. And so Paul is not concerned about, their, about a, a so-called false doctrine that, you know, tended to cheat them of their hope. Instead, he wants to counter those who have belittled and, and, and misaligned the Colossians' hope prompting some of them to develop these nagging doubts. So basically, he's trying to discredit the haters that are coming against the Colossian church. And so this backdrop best explains why the opening Thanksgiving emphasis um, kind of talks about their, their hope of glory. So Paul wants to revive their faith in the certainty of what the gospel promises. And so the faith that then Paul commends is not faith in general, but faith in Christ Jesus. So it refers specifically to the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he offers all believers, Jew and Gentile, the same promise of life. And so this faith is not something that can be possessed like a piece of property or you know, set aside in a creed as something that we say out of repetition or tradition. It's a, instead, it's a vibrant force that expresses itself in how, how we live. Consequently, Paul commends them for their faith proven by tangible demonstrations of love for the saints. He rejoices in its firmness, but he would also like to see it more securely established, which goes, which goes back to one of those two things that he mentioned uh, earlier, that we mentioned earlier about his, his reason for writing. And so love from Paul refers to the mutual love that Christians have for one another, which has become a, a basic Christian virtue. And uh, so faith directed towards Jesus Christ is embodied in love for others. It's a supernatural others-focused, God-given love because he refers to it a second time as your love in the Spirit. So Christians are not united solely by their mutual interests in personal salvation and eternity, but instead we're knit together in love. And this love is a force within, and it seeks to release. It seeks release by giving itself to others. It's not, it's not a vacuum that selfishly craves to be filled uh, by what others can give to us. True disciples of Christ, inspired by love, intend every action to bring benefit to others. Now that is convicting. Uh, that is something that is just radically convicting. Um, so a, a sure hope is the source of faith and love. So what's interesting in this formulation is that hope is not grounded in faith, but the reverse. Faith is grounded in hope. So Paul does not clarify what that hope precisely is, except that it's stored up in heaven. But what we can assume he has in mind is the glorious future that Christ has established and set aside for believers. And the hope of glory in Colossians 1.27 is based on Christ being in us. Christ is the image of God in whom all things were created. And he's the firstborn from among the dead. And so the implication in Colossians is that Christians are also being transformed into the image of God. And we will also know the resurrection from the dead. And this, this hope from Paul kind of in, encapsulates the word of truth, which is the gospel that he mentions there in verse 5. The second thing that Paul gives thanks for here is the universal impact of the gospel as it sprouts up everywhere on the earth, including Colossae. And so the gospel's effects testify to its power. 
testifies to its truth. And so Paul here applies two things to judge the genuine power of the gospel. One, the fact that it's universal, and two, that it's effective. And so Paul notes how the gospel has swept across geographical and racial barriers. Uh, against all odds to Paul, it's, it's found a ready reception throughout the world. And, and this power uh, to surmount geographical resistance testifies to its truth. And so the message of God's love for all humankind and Jesus' sacrificial death to redeem us by grace speaks in any language or any culture or any location. It speaks to the universal condition of every human being, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, and whatever other man-made division that human might create. The individual churches composed of converted Gentiles were for Paul a sign of the universal scope of God's saving purposes and of still greater things to come in the future. The second thing that he talks about here is the truth of the gospel is and it's, and it's in terms of its effectiveness, bearing fruit and growing. And so a gospel that bore no fruit would cease to be gospel. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, however, continued to produce harvest after harvest. And so bearing fruit has been interpreted for, for generations as referring to a crop of good deeds. But what Paul has in mind is converts. And so he's using this idea to say that the fact that there continues to be converts and different in, in different backgrounds, from in different locations, and all these different situations speaks to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so most people would not have called the advance of the gospel in the Greco-Roman world, though, a triumphant success. The church was not taking the world by storm. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, in penning the history of the Jewish war and of the Jews at the end of the first century, actually hardly gave mention uh, to Christians. But by contrast, Paul could see what they could not. A seed as small as the mustard had been sown, and it would produce magnificently because of God who gives the growth. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 7. And so the gospel was bursting forth in small groups of Christians, not only in, in such vital centers of the empire, uh, such as Rome or Corinth or Ephesus, but also in declining towns, uh, struggling along as, as Colossae, and the hearts of slain, slave owners such as Philemon and runaway slaves as Onesimus. And so the gospel is growing the way kudzu takes over in the American South, and we know how fast it grows. You know, originally, kudzu was imported as a ground cover, uh, but kudzu overruns everything. The difference is that the gospel is not some alien import or noxious weed or infestation, it's something deeply rooted in human need and in God's purposes for the entire creation. The third thing that Paul gives thanks for here, or the cause for Paul's giving thanks, is how Epaphras has laid a solid foundation for the Colossians in the true gospel. The gospel can only bear fruitful, uh, can, can bear fruit successfully when God's people faithfully proclaim it and when others respond with understanding and obedience. And this is the only Thanksgiving section in which Paul mentions the name of a particular person. I think that is worth noting. He identifies Epaphras as a dear fellow servant, the one who first taught them the gospel, and as a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And so Paul's close association with Epaphras and Epaphras's close association with the Colossians is the mutual bond that allows the apostle to write this friendly letter to them filled with instructions. How could Paul have mentioned 
Epaphras' founding work in Colossae without also commending him. And so we see this discussed about Epaphras here. And so uh, that is the opening section of verses 1 through 8, which kind of brings us to the, the next section, uh, talking in Colossians chapter 1, which gets us to verses 9 through 14, where he starts to intercede on behalf of the Colossians. And so Paul continues this Thanksgiving section that he started in verse 3 here uh, by informing the Colossians how he and Timothy specifically intercede for them in prayer. And so the initial success of the gospel in Colossae does not lull them into a, uh, you know, a, a comfortable place in this knowledge. Instead, it, it does quite the reverse. It actually leads them to even more intense prayer uh, for the Colossian believers. And so Paul notes that they have continued to pray for them because of what God had already done for them and because of their faith and love. And so Paul actually kind of refamiliarizes them with their blessings, their obligations, and their potential in Christ. And that is what a good mentor does. That is what a good leader or teacher does. They, they remind us that they're there for us, that they're praying for us, and they remind us of who we are in Christ. They remind us of what our involvement is as we are in Christ, and they also remind us of our potential in Christ. And so, side note, let me interject this challenge here. Who do you need to be encouraging in those ways right now? Who is it in your life that you need to be reminding them of who they are in Christ, of, of what that means for them on a daily basis and how they live their life, but also of their potential in Christ, giving them grace and encouragement to, to take that next step and to be strong in their faith and confident in those things. And so and we get to verse 9 where, where Paul prays that God will fill the Colossians with the knowledge of God's will through spiritual wisdom and discernment of every sort. And the, the knowledge that Paul has in view has nothing to do with some sort of secret mystery or lore that's reserved from some sort of religious elite or supernatural, you know, supernaturally you know, delivered hidden key that unlocks the mysteries of the universe or you know, the inner person or, or things like that. For Paul, understanding God's will involves recognizing how Christ is the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes, how God's salvation is open to all of God, to all people, and how God intercedes for Christians to live in whatever situation they find themselves in. And that's extremely encouraging to anyone, especially us today, with this culture that's so counterculture to Christianity. I know it feels all very new, but there's nothing new under the sun. A sin has always existed since the fall of man, and so it just has different faces that it wears. Now, in Judaism, one finds knowledge of God's will exclusively through the law. But for Paul, Christ is the, the end of the law, and God's will is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And so full knowledge, therefore, comes only through the Spirit and our complete commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, this knowledge is extremely important in the Colossian situation because if they sufficiently grasp that all of God's creation and His plan for the redemption of the cosmos revolves entirely around Christ, then they're not going to be confused are the challenges of opponents or dupes by kind of engaging notions that have the appearance of wisdom. So they've, they've got these people trying to trick them and deceive them, essentially, not in a, in a really aggressive way necessarily that, that we can tell, but they're just trying to plant these seeds of doubt in them. So Paul doesn't want his readers to gain knowledge purely for its own sake. That's dangerous too. Knowledge of God's will always has ethical implica implications though, because it requires us to bring 
our daily conduct and thinking into line with it. And so this, 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 this may explain why many people do not want to know that will or why they attempt to kind of tranquilize themselves or numb themselves with the more agreeable and seemingly more sophisticated wisdom or the pick-and-choose theology where certain parts of the Bible are, you know, for us to apply today and certain parts are not. But wisdom that excludes Christ or makes him subordinate is always counterfeit. I'll say that again. Wisdom that excludes Christ or makes him subordinate to anything is always counterfeit. So the goal of being filled with the knowledge of God is to live a life worthy of the Lord and to please Him in every way. Spiritual wisdom and understanding help us know what is truly important in life from God's perspective. God gives us knowledge to lead us to a deeper faith, greater virtue, and more devout service. And so Paul lists four traits of the spiritual life that are pleasing to the Lord, and they are bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to His glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. And so in verses 12 through 14, Paul follows that by, by he, he specifies three reasons for joyfully giving thanks for what God the Father has done in Christ. And, and each is expressed by a verb. And so the first one that he, that he lists here as a reason is Paul says that God has qualified them to share in the inheritance. And the phrase to share of the inheritance was originally identified uh, with the land that was apportioned to each tribe after the conquest. Um, after the exile, some Jews used this inheritance language to refer to a divine bequest uh, beyond history and connected to, to the resurrection life to come. But nearly all Jews regarded the inheritance as exclusively Israel's. And like most heirs, they did not want to share with strangers and enemies. Uh, and we can relate to that too. And so what they believed rightfully belonged to them alone uh, was for them alone. It would be no different if you lost a loved one and in the will and testimony, they left, you know, X amount of dollars to you and somebody else was trying to claim it. Well, if it was left to you and you had that belief, you know, from the document, then you were not going to be swayed by that. And so that was kind of how the Jews approached this. And so Gentiles have no natural right to the inheritance, but through Christ, they have been made full legal heirs. In the kingdom of light, and that literally translates in the light, the word kingdom does not appear in the Greek text, but this translation kind of helps us to see that Paul refers to the salvation from God that has been uh, inaugurated by Christ. Now, the second reason that Paul gives for joyfully giving thanks um, is that Paul affirms that God has rescued them from the power of darkness. Uh, Paul characterizes the life of Gentiles before coming Christians as an ethical and theological darkness. We talked about that um, in pretty, pretty great detail, and a lot, of, a lot of detail that was, we went through Ephesians chapter 2 specifically. Uh, immorality, anger, strife, vengeance, violence, and oppression all were thriving in, in, in these uh, past lives of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles were in bondage to the prince of darkness. And so, and, and within his evil dominion, uh, C.S. Lewis, um, in his description of the fictional land of Narnia and the Chronicles of Narnia, in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, he says it was, I believe he words it as, always winter and never Christmas, um, expresses the same idea uh, with different imagery there. And so all humans need deliverance from a wasted life of sin and from the cosmic powers that keeps us captive to sin. Uh, you know, when the mob comes with swords and clubs to arrest, arrest Jesus in the garden, 
he declares that this is the hour of the power of darkness. And so that was when violence ruled in Christ. God tears believers away from this dark power and moves them into light. There is now joy in the winter. There is now joy and hope in the winter. It's not always winter, always cold and snowy and icy without Christmas. Now we have joy um, in the world that is still a fallen world. It can still be a dark place. The third reason that he gives is that God has, has rescued believers from the tyrannical rule of darkness and has inadvertently brought them into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Changing lordships means changing kingdoms. Uh, the, the image pictures kind of a reverse exile. Uh, God's domain is filled with light and its, its charter is love. Uh, because God loves his son, all of those who belong to him are objects of divine love now. Instead of objects of divine wrath, we're now objects of divine love. And so the following verses affirm that Christ reigns over all powers in the universe. And Paul affirms in Romans that no force in heaven or earth, physical or supernatural, can separate us from that love. And so since these powers cannot obstruct or deter our relationship with God, we ought not fear them and we must not give them any sort of homage or attention as the world so adamantly wants us to do. And so Paul caps off the mention of the beloved son with the benefits he has, he has given us or bestowed on us, as we see in Ephesians as well, namely the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Christ has removed the barrier of sin. We cannot emphasize that enough. What a hope we have in Jesus to know that Christ removed the barrier of sin. And so we, we can see here that the forgiveness of sin is not merely good news for a guilty conscience. That's not, that's, that's not that trivial. The blessings of our final redemption and the work of Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross have already broken into the present. So the forgiveness of sins is not simply a, a freedom from things in the past. It sets us free for the present and the future as well. It opens up a possibility of living a life worthy of the Lord that Paul talks about in Ephesians and now Colossians in verse 10. Paul says that the Colossians used to give their lives to sin, which brings only God's wrath, but now they give their lives to Christ, which brings forth joy and light. That brings us to our final section that we will cover in today's episode, which is Colossians 15, verse 23. And so Paul's mention of the kingdom of the beloved son in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, kind of leads to a poetic praise of Christ in the verses that follow in uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And this section divides into two parts as well. Um, and each section has its own theme. Uh, Christ is the mediator of creation. He's victorious over the powers. He's the Lord over all, the God, all of God's created order. Christ is also Lord over God's new order, the church, where we find reconciliation. So every part of the created universe, both visible and invisible, was created in, by, and for him. And every part will be touched by Christ's reconciling work on the cross. And so Christ, Christ's cosmos or universally encompassing supremacy kind of, kind of talks about the status and the power of those who have been brought into his kingdom. And so the, the universal supremacy of Christ matches the, the universal power of the gospel that we talked about in chapter 1, verse 6. And so it assures believers of the, of the power that we have and the sufficiency that we have in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And um, there's a lot of discussion on whether the verses in this section, verses 15 through 20, 
or an early Christian hymn. Um, I don't feel like it's super uh, necessary to get into that just for time's sake at this point in this episode, but it is an interesting discussion and study to look into, and so I can give you some direction to some uh, reliable resources in, in, in that topic if you would like to know more about that. But let's, let's move on to the content of the, of the verses here and not necessarily the, the origins there. And so which is the, the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over, over creation that we see first mentioned here. And so this first section, verses 15 through 17, kind of proclaim that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. Um, and he's the agent of creation. And it concludes with this majestic affirmation that all things hold together in him. And so we see first the image of the invisible God. And this, this poem or this hymn, whatever it is, uh, begins by affirming that Christ is the image of the invisible God explicitly. And so there's nothing implied here. There's no, there's no you know, suggested meaning. Paul just says it. And this may sound strange to us. How can something invisible have an image? Well, in Greek philosophy, the image has a share in the reality that it reveals and may be said to be the reality. And so an image was not considered something distinct from the object it represented, like a, like a reproduction or something like that. And so as the image of God, Christ is an exact as well as, um, as a, a visible representation of God. And so he illuminated God's essence. And so as God's representation and representative, Christ brings clarity to kind of our, our, our hazy notion of the immortal, invisible God who lives in this unapproachable light that we see uh, Paul talk about when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 17. And so uh, in, in Christ, we see who God is. He's creator. He's redeemer. He shows us what God is like. He's a God of mercy and love and what God does. One who sends his son to rescue people from the dominion of darkness and brings about the reconciliation of all creation through his death upon the cross. So human beings, Christians, are also made in God's image. But the son is the only satisfactory likeness of God. As the perfect image of God, Christ teaches us what God intended humans to be, uh, renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator. The second thing that we see in in this section is that He's the firstborn over all creation. So Christ is also acclaimed as the, the firstborn over all creation. We usually associate the term firstborn with birth and kind of directs us to the first child. So Roman would be my firstborn, that kind of thing. Uh, the meaning occurs in, in Luke 2, 7, and where Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary. But Paul's usage has quite a, a different take and different perspective. So it, while it pl- implies priority in time, it does not mean that Christ was the first being created or born. So the metaphor really distinguishes Christ from all created things as before them in time and as supreme. So Paul is saying that he outranks all things in creation. Um, so the NIV kind of talks about how, how Paul asserts Christ, uh, how, how he came before creation and not just within creation. Uh, he exists outside of creation and not just within creation. And then we see that all things are created in him. And so the next statement in that explains why Christ is preeminent over all creation. Verse 16 contains a series of prepositional phrases. Um, All things were created in him, through him, and for him, or with respect to 
him. And so Paul frequently uses in Christ, as we talked about at the beginning of this episode, or in him in this sense. Since the last part of this verse states that all things have been created through him, it's unlikely that, 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 that Paul intends to repeat the idea of Christ's agency in creation. So the first prepositional phrase maintains Christ was the location from whom all came into being and in whom all creation is contained. Wow, that's some heavy theology here that Paul's throwing around to this uh, dwindling city uh, with the, these believers. And so we can see the tangible powers on earth, but we cannot see the invisible forces of heaven. The invisible things are identified as the thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, and, and perhaps refer to a heavenly host. And so they may be good or evil. And so they, they may be mediators of divine knowledge, or they may be foes in a league with the power of darkness. They could be simply human patterns of authority. And so the, but the point that Paul celebrates is that Christ has majesty and power over all of them, whatever shape they take, whatever title they bear, whatever, whatever way they manifest themselves, that Christ has majesty and power over all of them. They, like all things, were created by him and for him. The other thing that we see here is the controlling principle of creation. So this first section concludes with kind of a, a affirmation of Christ's universal preeminence. He was before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Christ has precedence over all things in terms of time and status, and he's a, a kind of divine glue or a spiritual gravity that holds creation together. And man, you can't really even put that into human words, but God did not simply start things off and then withdraw from his creation. Christ continues to sustain the entire universe. He is the basic operating principle controlling existence. The universe is not self-sufficient. It's just not, and nor are individuals. And no matter how much we think that we are, we, we may deceive ourselves into thinking we are, uh, but e even those who do not acknowledge Christ's reign and even those who actively oppose him are entirely dependent upon him. And they do not like to be reminded of that. They do not like to be told that. But that is essentially what Paul is talking about to this group of believers, that everything, every power, every person was made by him, through him, and for him, and is sustained, held together as that divine glue by Jesus Christ. So then we move into this section that talks more about Christ as the head of the church and the firstborn from among the dead. And so uh, the, the first section, verses 15 through 17, elevates Christ as the, the sphere of creation, the mediator of creation, the preserver and controller of creation, and ultimately creation's aim. Uh, but Paul does not exult in some heavenly uh, ab abstraction. The, the poem's second section brings that same Christ down to earth, uh, where his blood flows from a body strung upon a cross. And, and Christians know the supreme creator and sustainer of all things as the crucified and resurrected Lord. Uh, Paul anchors Christ's cosmic supremacy in salvation history, how that impacts us, how that plays out in our lives, and in his lordship over the church. And so the image of the invisible God entered the plane of human experience in order to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth by means of his humiliating death. So Christ establishes his lordship in house churches and prison cells and families, as well as the furthest reaches of heaven. His sacrificial death 
shows that the fundamental rationale of the world is caught more in the generous outpouring of sacrificial redemptive love than in the greed and grasping that is characteristic of the authority of darkness that we see referenced here in Colossians 1.12. And so Christ also reveals more of the ultimate aims of this invisible God. And the first thing that he reveals is that he is the head of the, the, head of the church. And the second section begins by proclaiming that Christ is the head of the body of the church. It was not uncommon in Paul's time for philosophers to compare uh, the, the universe to a body, but Paul applies it to the church, uh, which was a, not a universal entity, but a historical entity at this point. And so if Christ is the head of the church, it means that the, the destinies of creation and the church are bound together and that God's purposes for all creation kind of begin in the church's congregational life. And so the church doesn't exist to meet the needs of its members or to ensure its institutional survival as a historical entity, uh, but instead to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Christ, its head, as the, as the head of the church. And so it should therefore, the church should therefore reflect the image of the divinely ordered universe. The creative principle flourishes in the church as it bears fruit over all the world uh, through its preaching the gospel and living wor worthily of Christ. The focus is on Christ, however, here, uh, not the church. I need to clarify that. So when Paul uses the, the body metaphor elsewhere, you can look in Colossians 3.15, we can look in Romans 12, 4 and 5, we can look in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 12 through 31. He stresses the interdependence of church members. In this passage, though, Paul emphasizes the body's organic and dependent relation to Christ as head. Head, beginning, firstborn, all derived from the same root in Hebrew. And in each one, each usage affirms Christ's sovereignty in the new creation and in the old. So what's more important is that the usage of head can also kind of point us to source or origin. So Christ is the source of the church's life. And so the metaphor head kind of designates him as, as both, both as supreme over the church and as the source of the church's life. And the image of a living body, the head not only directs and governs the body, it gives it life and strength. And that's what Christ does for his bride, the church, today. The second thing that we see in this section, verses 18 through 20, is that the, this poem or hymn moves from creation uh, to a new creation by identifying Christ as the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And Christ's resurrection is the source of new life for others. He is the first in a sequence that opens new possibilities for others who follow, uh, which is why he says in John 14, 19, because I live, you also will live. Then we see the, the, the theme of the fullness of God, which is seen in the next clause in verse 19, which explains that, that Christ differs from other divine appearances in the world, such as angels and, and things like that, because he is a full not partial. He is a full embodiment of God. It says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In the Old Testament, God chose a place for his name to dwell and express divine care. Uh, the Lord particularly chose to dwell on Zion. And we can look at many Old Testament references that talk about that. God pleases to dwell fully and permanently only in Christ. Uh, Christ supplants the temple or any other house made with hands, and he represents God in person. All the attributes and activities of God, his spirit, word, wisdom, and glory are disclosed in Christ. We especially see God's redemptive power in Christ, the fullness of that redemptive power 
in Christ, and that is not seen anywhere else. Fourthly, uh, we see um, the, a, a sequence that is in him, through him, and to him. Um, in one sixteen, and it's repeated in one nineteen and 20. And so, in the beginning, God created all things through Christ. In the end, God will reconcile all things through Christ. And so, Christ's majesty is rooted in God's love. It's shown in the earthly, historical reality of the cross. And he is not the Lord of some spiritual netherworld or an alien or, or hostile to this material realm. But instead, he's one who took on the flesh of creation. So Christianity has not been founded on this fable or, or mythical salvation drama, um, as was true of the, the rival mystery religions of Paul's day. Agonizing suffering in history, nailing it to the cross, Christ achieved our redemption. Christ achieved our redemption. So how does this hymn or poem or elevated language of Christ in verses 15 through 20 relate to the argument in Colossians. How does it fit in? Well, that's, it, it might seem abstract. It's Paul's and talk about that, but it's really important uh, to, to interject some thoughts here to kind of lay the groundwork for um, how it does apply to what's going to follow in the next couple of weeks. And so, one, if Christ is the image of God and all the fullness of God dwells in him, the Colossians will not find fullness in anything else anything that they're being uh, you know, taught or potentially deceived by. If Christ is the image of God, and if all the fullness of God dwells in him, then the Colossians better not look anywhere else. Secondly, if all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, were created by him, uh, then he brings to naught all supposed threats by these same supposed powers. And so he rules over, so he is greater than. Uh, a, third, a third way this factors into Colossians is that God's plan from before creation was to reconcile all things through Christ. And that design and plan has not been revised. The Colossians do not need a supplemental salvation plan. They do not need a plan B. Uh, and they, they cannot attain the peace and reconciliation through heavenly visions or through you know, rigorous education or anything like that. Instead, attention to these things that their opponents are encouraging to give attention to may actually inadvertently disqualify them. Fourth, Christ is supreme over everything, uh, but that supremacy shows itself most visibly in the church, where Christ is the head of the body, uh, and those who lose connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow, those who detach themselves from the head are going to wither and die. You know, one can cut off any extremity of the body except for the head and still live. And so that's what Paul is really driving home here, is that you have to cling to the head. You have to cling to the head of the church, and that is Christ. Fifth, the supremacy of Christ over the entire universe assures believers of the sufficiency of Christ. And so in that light, they should, they should not allow their hope in Christ who is the firstborn of the dead, to be shaken when it's challenged or you know, spoken, uh, spoken down by others that they encounter. And then lastly, if Christ sustains the entire universe, then Christ can, can sustain individual believers. Well, what a simple but encouraging note there, that if Christ can sustain the entire universe and be a, a cosmic and universal glue, then surely he can sustain us as individuals 
regardless of what it is that we're facing. Uh, maybe somebody needed that encouragement uh, today. And that brings us to our last short but important section of verses, which is verses 21 through 23, which concludes this opening Thanksgiving section. Uh, the key words of faith, hope, and heard are repeated from the opening verses. Uh, these verses restate the theme um, that redemption comes in Christ. These concluding words of thanksgiving kind of recall the believer's past, present, and future. They also declare the means of their redemption, um, the, the effects of its redemption, and the extent of the impact of their redemption in Christ. But this conclusion also contains a warning, because if believers are to be holy without blemish and free from accusation in the future, they must remain steadfast in the faith in the present. So they can't take their new status for granted. They can't be nonchalant about, to, about its responsibilities. And they can't be fooled into thinking that other avenues to God exist. And so Christ alone offers solution to human alienation in the world. That's what Paul is trying to challenge them with. Reconciliation in Christ breaks the cycle of sin. It heals the ruptured relationship with God. And it brings us into the God's presence and with, with, it brings us into accord with God's holy character and purpose. And so by referring to Christ's physical body here in this conclusion, Paul reemphasizes that the one who was fully identified with God is fully identified with sinful humanity. Uh, he shared our life. He shared our experiences and our suffering. Uh, he experienced our suffering. He bore our sin and he endured the full force of the consequences of our sin, namely being death. And, and so those who are members of Christ's body find their sin already canceled by his death. And the dominion of darkness, with all of its menacing powers and authorities, well, it's already defeated. And that's one of the things that irritates me so much about Hollywood and how it portrays this battle of cosmic you know, you know, forces of good and evil. It's almost like it's an equal playing field. The victory's already been won. That, that battle is already over. Yes, there are still things going on in our world, but in Christ, we are victorious. And somebody needs to say that every now and then, if not all the time. The imagery of being without blemish that we see here comes from the world of sacrifice. Animals offered in sacrifice to God, they had to be unblemished or they were thrown out. And so when a man offered an animal in sacrifice, he laid his hand out on it in order to identify himself with its offering and express his aspirations to himself be holy and unblemished by a sacrifice. And so Paul believes that this aspiration has become, become a reality in Christ. Uh, through the sacrifice of Christ, who knew no sin, we blameworthy sinners have become the righteousness of God. Now, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. That's one of Paul's uh, most adamant themes that he teaches in the New Testament. And this, this leads to the, the law court imagery, where we are presented before the judgment seat of God. And no accusation will be raised against us, though, because in Christ we will be irreproachable. Paul emphasizes that Christ has accomplished this perfection for us. It doesn't come from our own striving, uh, but God's goal of making us a holy and blameless people in Christ is still a work in progress, and it requires some response on our part, and that's worth mentioning too. Christ, you know, Christians need to recognize that we've been reconciled to God to live a life that God approves of. The promise of blamelessness is not unconditional. If the Colossians allow outsiders to dislocate them from their foundation in the gospel, what they had heard and received from Epaphras, they will find themselves removed from their hope. Uh, therefore, they need to be planted ever more deeply in the faith that they had first heard preached, and which is preached throughout the world, um, or else they would become like the seed in the shallow earth that burst into bloom, 
but then quickly withered and died under persecution that we see, um, see in Mark's gospel and verses 16 through 17 of chapter 4. And so in, in concluding his thanksgiving, Paul expresses his deepest conviction that God's plan for the world, kept secret from the dawn of history until now, has at last, at long last, been disclosed in Christ in fullness. And it's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, an expression that, that really echoes Old Testament language, but uh, Paul does not intend um, literally. It means that the gospel is not some obscure or secret mystery, uh, but this verse does define the scope of the church's, mis- the church's mission field, which Paul will then unfold from this point forward, and that is the gospel is to go out to everyone everywhere. And I look forward to walking through that uh, with you the next couple of weeks. And I thank you again for joining me today. Uh, As I've said before, whoever you are and wherever you are, and I pray that something from this broad broad view of the majority of of chapter one has encouraged you and has challenged you as we prepare to move into chapter two next week. And uh, we will see you then.